Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 156 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and here with me as usual is my co-host and best friend, Patrick. Hey everyone! But we have a treat for you tonight, because joining us are two very special guests. First, we have returning guest, Emmanuel Noisette from E-Man's Movie Reviews. Welcome back, E-Man. What up, what up? And also here with us, making his podcasting debut, is the newest member of the Feelin' Film team, Colesse Davis. What's up? Good to have you, my friend. I'm excited to have your input on this one and in all future episodes when you're able to join us. So I'm, I'm pumped for this. I'm glad you're able to be here. So we figured a movie as highly anticipated as Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out has been deserved of this mega treatment, and we expect this conversation about his new film, Us, will be insightful, entertaining, and possibly informative if we can work our way through its many layers. With that said, there is a lot going on in Us, and we are going to spoil the crap out of it. We're going to talk about it in depth, we're going to try to peel back its many layers and figure it out as best we can and find out how people felt. So if you haven't seen it, get yourself to a theater, go watch this film, and then come back and go through this process along with us. Now we like to start off here with our one word takeaways, and that's kind of the one word that sums up your initial feelings when you came out of seeing the film the first time, or second, I guess, if you've seen it more than once before this podcast, as a couple of you have. And Coles, we're going to ask if you would share yours first. Yes, um, thank you. My one word takeaway was symbolic from the beginning when you see the commercial of hands across america and you know when the little girl goes to the fair and the thriller shirt her going down into the you know the amusement park um vision quest yes vision quest the reflect the reflection shots you see um the cinematography choices um the way the tether are dressed from their red jumpers to the use of scissors the gloves um the way the families are too different the way way they operate the locale just the way even the score the way the score operates and everything like everything is symbolic of something i mean even down to the rabbits and of course around the ending you start to see some things pay off as far as foreshadowing but everything is detailed and means something more than what it is and i think this movie is a treasure chest that can be dissected and that will continue to live on for many years afterwards just the same as get out did um, my one word takeaway is symbolic. Awesome, man. Thank you. Eman, how about you? What was your one word takeaway? Yeah, um, very similar to, uh, Coles's actually. Um, but along with those symbols was, uh, my one word takeaway was layered. And just when I look at the themes and the motifs that are going on throughout the movie, a lot of them can have either, sur- uh, uh, superficial, uh, meaning to them and then also play with, you know, deeper fundamental meanings as well. And it was interesting. I know we'll get to this hopefully later on in the podcast. Even the twist in the movie, um, when I first saw it, I really thought it was kind of, you know, uh, unnecessary, um, because the movie was going at such a interesting pace and, and it was just so thrilling. And it wasn't until the second rewatch that I was like, Oh my gosh, there's like a deeper meaning and a purposeful one to not only communicate a message but to reinforce like what has always been demonstrated in the movie and um you know just kind of 
taking that theme of of privilege and the fear of the other there are so many different layers and so many different ways you can look at that and apply it to very many different aspects in this movie and in terms of a social context and that to me is just mind-blowing whether it was intentional or not it's there you know and it's it's just one of those things that has not left me um ever since i finished watching this movie as a matter of fact when i did my first reaction after watching the movie i was kind of like dumbfounded a little bit and people thought i didn't like the movie but it was really like no i have to process a lot of stuff because there's a lot of stuff to dig through so yeah one word takeaway is definitely layered awesome symbolic and layered i think i could agree with both of those already so what about you patrick would you come away with well i came with away with the word casual and as someone who feels pretty confident representing the quote horror is not my thing group i can say that this is definitely something that feels like casual horror if that's actually a thing in the last year or two you and i have kind of through the podcast explored things like the blair witch project the shining two movies that i had not seen um, either in their entirety or willingly until we actually covered them and I got to feel like, okay, well, there's the, the world of horror is a very big genre. And I think anybody who's a fan or not would be able to say that. But watching this, I think that it feels casual in that it's not over the top in jump scares. The grotesqueness isn't quite up there with things like Nightmare on Elm Street. And the overall tone doesn't feel like we're running away from slashers in the woods at Camp Crystal Lake, that kind of thing. But in addition to that, I felt like the overall narrative takes this pretty casual approach from the hilarious way that Winston Duke's Gabe Wilson took to all the craziness that was going on. I especially loved the sequence where he's trying to get the, what he doesn't know, the doppelgangers off, off his lawn and off his property. Um, and then to the way that the tethers themselves each reacted to their human counterparts for the most part. Yes, there's terror and there's tension, but I didn't feel like I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the next thing to pop out at me like I'm used to in your typical horror genre. In a lot of ways, a movie like this was made for me. But I think Peel is doing a kind of horror that doesn't have to heavily rely on that kind of stuff, that it relies on us, no pun intended, or maybe all pun intended, filling in those gaps and letting what we feel create that kind of terror for us. So much like The Shining in some ways and much like much like The Blair Witch Project, we are filling in those gaps in order to manufacture tension that may not physically be there. And to me, I think that's a better kind of horror because it gives us the power to feel or not feel a sense of, of fear in that way. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, man. Well, my one word takeaway was respect. And I get there because, so first of all, it's probably telling that I never truly felt scared for the characters in us. And that's, that's on me somewhat. And maybe we'll get into that a bit, but I actually found the film to be really funny for most of it. And I think it had the expertly crafted humor that just stem from this wonderful family dynamic. That's really what I honed in on the most. Unfortunately, 
because of the humor and the way in which the horror elements play out once there is a chase involved, I never really developed a deep emotional connection to the family. And I think it's because I just didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know why they were being attacked. I couldn't logically fill in those gaps, Patrick, to make it work in my head. And that made me not be as empathetic as I felt like I should be in that situation. So I appreciated the imagery. I appreciated the omens. The filmmaking is phenomenal. The performances are outstanding. And all of the technical pieces of this movie made it a mostly enjoyable experience for me. But I I was really left wanting in a big way. And I, I don't like that I had to come home and Google a Bible verse just to get context that made the film more understandable in hindsight. That was really bothering me that a Bible verse pops up on screen early in the film. And it was very meaningful, come to find out. And it has a number in it that is very symbolic and meaningful. But there's literally no way you could pick up on what that means without coming home after the film and figuring it out. And I thought that that was a problem. Because it makes it interesting in hindsight, but it doesn't make it work for me in the in the moment. So I wish I'd picked it up the first time around. I didn't. Ultimately, I respected it, I think, this film, more than I loved it, more than I even liked it. It's really ambitious. It's interesting. And Peel has an incredible, incredible talent um, at his disposal. And I'm open to seeing it again. I'm hoping that this conversation will help, like we said, peel some of those layers back for me too. And maybe my feelings on it will change. Uh, but we'll see. We will, we will find out. And with that said, we are going to do that. We're going to jump in. So the follow-up to Get Out, this film made $70.3 million, guys, in ticket sales in opening weekend. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is the largest debut for an original horror film outside of the remakes of It and Halloween from last year. So theoretically, it is actually the highest grossing opening weekend for an actual original horror film. That's pretty incredible. It's also one of the biggest openings for a live action original film of any kind, not a sequel, not part of a franchise, since Avatar was released 10 years ago. And for that to come in the, quotes, horror genre is astounding. So this movie kind of breaks the mold of the horror genre in many ways. It's it's going to be claimed to be horror, and I think that's a, a big part because at South by Southwest, when this movie first screened, Jordan Peele specifically stated this is a horror film. Okay, it is also the first horror film to feature an all-black family, as well as the first to have no black character sidekick that dies in the first or second act. So I'm wondering, and Eman and Coles, you both just fist-pumped. I love that. <laughs> so I'm going to ask Eman, why don't you start it off? Was this something you noticed while watching it, or is it something that maybe you learned after the fact? And was the racial makeup of the family going through this experience, was that enhancing to your viewing in any way? So, um, you know, I think that the interesting thing with this is, um, how can I put this? So for one, it wasn't something I noticed at first because I saw a a family that looked like my own, you know, it's kind of like when 
if if I'm a black person and I walk into a room full of black people, I'm not going to be like, oh, wow, there are a lot of black people here. You know, it, it's it's only when it's something very contrasting, you know, that that it'll uh, jump out. Um, so for me to see to go into a movie that I know uh, a, a black film creator, writer, producer made and the highlight, the lead characters are all black. It didn't stand out to me or jump to me that, you know, there was not that much of a white presence per se. And, and the fact that the, the white family was like the, the main one to go, um, first anyway, and not just a random black person dying first and following the, the same Hollywood tropes. It's something I guess I appreciated in hindsight just because it was bucking that trend, um, that tends to happen, especially in horror films. Um, but no, it, my initial watch, uh, viewing, it didn't really jump out at me, but it is something that I kind of noticed that like, this is something Jordan Peele would do. I could totally see Jordan Peele making a complete comedy skit about this, you know, in his Key and Peele uh, sitcoms as well. So um, it didn't jump out, but it was, you know, it's like, okay, cool. I, I see what you did there. And <laughs> what about you, Coles? Now, on as for me, it jumped out immediately. See, I have a thing where, like, you know, when I watch a film involving, like, any African-American actors or representation, I like to see how they're being portrayed. You know, um... There used to be a problem that we used to have back in the early days of Hollywood where, you know, you would see African-Americans just get dehumanized. Like no matter what, like they would either have to play some waitresses or they had to play uh, mammies or they would just play like like these characters who just were dim with it. And it just wasn't an accurate representation of what black people could be. And then that's carried on throughout the years. You know, we've kind of have peeled the layers back and we're starting to get a little bit more beautiful representation of African-Americans in film. But it's still kind of rare in most instances. So seeing those early scenes of the family just interacting and having those moments that you would see in like a film like Cheaper by the Dozen or like in the Adams Family, you know, just having those moments where like, oh, the dad gets a boat and the mom and daughter are like, did he just really do that? And then the mom's like, yes, he did. Like those moments like that warm my heart, you know, because I'm all about for positive images of African-American on film. And I knew that Jordan Peele would would um go this route. And have families like that um, recognized because, I mean, he's a black man himself. So he's seen the same things that I have seen and E-Man has seen in films in the past. So it definitely stood out to me. I loved it. It was a beautiful representation of a black family finally getting to have those moments that, you know, you would see families from another race have in other films. Um, like even Crazy Rich Asians, seeing that family have like a good representation it was great man it was great to see it and i loved every minute of it it definitely was the first um point that stood out to me in the film yeah that's one awesome one of the things that that i like about great storytelling and good filmmaking is the ability to write what you know and seeing jordan peele's name on written produced and directed by did not surprise me when i watch a movie like this and i fully admit this is coming from a white perspective i was glad to know that the story held up on its own, not having to call attention to the fact that this is a black family, which I think is different from what you guys talk about with other horror films where the token black guy gets off in the first two acts. That becomes a racial trope. That's not a storytelling trope. It is a trope, but it's not a good one. And it's one that becomes farcical at that point. It becomes the the subject of, of comedy sketches that I think – the P and Keel side of Jordan Peele would probably 
would probably uh, amplify. What I liked about this was the fact that there's simply no apologetics about this is a family going to the beach or going to their summer home. And it reminded me a lot of the Cosby show where there was no attention drawn to the fact that the Huxtables were a well-off family, a doctor and a lawyer who had great kids. And the thing that I loved about that show, again, from the white perspective, is that it wasn't it didn't need to apologize for the success of a black family. It simply was a great show that centered around a family that was successful and what it was like to live in that family. Now, was it making a mark on television? Absolutely. And I fully recognize that, but I like that it can do both. And I think that us does both without having to force one or the other. And I think movies like get out, what Peel does there is he's making a very obvious statement in a, in a very creative way, but us is a lot more subtle not only in its symbolism, not only in its that creativity, but the fact that we start out with a family that we're introduced to and we're basically told, this is the family you're going to be following. These are the protagonists. And there's no need to explain why they're black. <laughs> there's no need to explain why a black family has a summer home and they're going to the beach because that's just what it is. And I don't think that should be something that is talk down to. I think it's something that absolutely is one of those things that should be unapologetic and it should be considered normal to an audience. It's not. And I think that it's doing two things at once. It's doing, it's saying, look, we're unapologetic about who we are and who this family is representing. But at the same time, this is the world that can exist and a world that doesn't need to look weird to an audience. So I, I love the duality of that. And and I personally enjoyed the family dynamic. I think that the chemistry between the two leads was amazing. They felt like a couple that had been married for years. The way in which they back and forth and had banter with one another. And there were moments of comedy that created levity in between these moments of terror. And overall, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, I did too. And that's the thing that stood out to me most about the entire film was just the family dynamics and the chemistry between Winston Duke and Lupita and the kids. I thought that they were very much relatable. And, you know, in hindsight, I think there is an intention to that, that I would find them very relatable. And I wondered after the fact, am I finding them relatable? Because I think of their family dynamic as one that I'm used to seeing from a white family in a movie where I'm not used to seeing a black family portrayed this way in a film where the white guy's a very goofy. I mean, like I could see E-Man like this, like people in my real life that I know I could definitely see E-Man in some board shorts going to get himself a boat out of the docks and making jokes to his kids because I've heard him make jokes to his kids. And I've heard his kids oh, make jokes about Patrick too, by the way, which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know these, you know people in your real life, but in the movie sense, we just don't get families like this with this kind of dynamic at all. And I do think that the wealth aspect that we see from them, the prosperity is part of an intentional plot device that will come into play, we'll talk about. But just from the perspective of the way they interacted with each other as a family, I did not 
pick up on the fact that they were black either. Like, I mean, I knew it obviously in my analytical brain watching the movie, but it didn't register as something that stood out to me as impactful, like because the chemistry between the actors was so outstanding. I just kept thinking to myself, every dad joke that Gabe would make, I was like, this guy is like me. Like, I love this guy. He's amazing. He is every dad I know. Like, I think he's phenomenal. And it made it so enjoyable to watch. And and it hindered, like I said in my one more takeaway, my ability going forward, because I enjoyed that dynamic so much, that interplay, that when it goes completely away and they get separated for half the film, for the most part, I really, really desperately missed that. Um, and I, I think that that also showed me like I'm desperately missing that in general in cinema. And so I think it is awesome that, you know, Peel probably intentionally created this family to do all of these things, not only to fill in these symbolic pieces of his story, but to be iconic, be that first black family in a horror movie that isn't all going to die because they're African-Americans, so they have to die first. And let um, me just say this as a side note, just as a tribute to Jordan Peele. I love the fact that this is an original property, that this is yet one of the very few movies that will come out this year that's not tied to an IP of some kind. I have longed for more movies like this, and I, I wish that we had more of that. Unfortunately, that's not what gets the bucks. And um, Stuck so, squarely between Captain Marvel, Dumbo, live action, and Shazam. Yeah. So <laughs> kudos to Peel for just being a great writer and director and saying, this is what I know, and fortunately, it's what's selling. Yeah. No, absolutely, man. Um, So Jordan has been clear in labeling this a horror film, like we discussed, but it also has that plenty of humor. So I'm wondering for you guys, did it did you react at more like I did where the humor overtook you, your ability to be scared or did it scare you? And to piggyback off that, would you consider this a horror movie? And Coles, I'll see what you thought first. Well, as for me, the horror was the, the actually my bad. The humor was very surprising to see. I came into this film expecting to see a more like serious um, film get out had his moments of um, humor but it, i felt like in get out it didn't really overtake the seriousness and the psychological horror of it in this film i think it kind of did for me you know i was expecting like especially in the scenes like like one scene when the white when the um, white family gets killed and you know i see the family they're still cracking they're still having the funny moments the cracking jokes and everything and it kind of was like what i was like you know i was like thinking like hey this family just got massacred like i thought you would be um more like downtone about it but i mean it wasn't so bad to the point where i thought it was reaching campy status i mean it was definitely uh, put into the right places to where it doesn't overshadow the creepy atmosphere what i can say is that the film is more creepier to me than actually scary now, a film like Hereditary last year, that was scary to me. But this film felt like just like a creepy psychological film where you like have to really have to think double time about certain things. And like you leave the movie theater and you ride in your car and you're just like, man, um, I don't even know what I really saw. Like this stuff connected to this, this connected to that. But it's not like something that like, you're going to get home and you're going to have to hide under the covers and just like look behind your back for a cut for a couple of days afterwards. So it's not really technically if you want to think about a horror film as far as like 
the the parallels it uses, the way it tells the narrative, the way that it combines a lot of influences like Hitchcock and Kubrick influences into the actual execution, then yes, it's a horror film. But as far as raising somebody's heart level and like, you know, making you sweat in the seat, it's not that type of horror film. What about you, E-Man? Did it do any kind of elevating of your heart rate? Yeah, hell no, no. Um, look, <laughs> You're look. a horror veteran, I know. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I like look a horror film to me, and I know we should really get into like definitions here, right? And and it's very difficult to to really um, define horror and the differentiation between that and a thriller. And I think the best way I've come up with it so far is that a thriller will raise that level of anxiety, right? It'll, you know, there'll they'll be like all these suspenseful, intense moments that, like you mentioned, will get your heart racing and all of that. But a horror takes it to another level where whether your heart is racing or not, it's tapping into a fear, some sort of fear. And usually that fear is coming from something external from yourself. So even if it's claustrophobia, it's because of closed confined spaces if you're afraid of water it's something external from yourself so technically i i agree with Coles. like this this is a horror but it's like on the lower level scale of horror i mean unless you're uh, afraid of um intruders you know kind of like the strangers for example um you know that i guess could be a bit of a uh of a uh, uh, labeling or classification for the horror, but it definitely didn't scare me. Um, and, and yeah, it definitely didn't have me, you know, looking over my shoulder for my evil twin or anything like that either. So I think this is more of a social horror. And that's kind of like what I've wanted to classify this as because it shows the scary parts of society and the, the the scary elements of society, which I do think is more in line with what Peel was trying to get at. Yeah. He wanted to show that we are the monsters, or sometimes the things that we are afraid of look like us too. Yeah. And that's the part that it might not that a, a conventional horror is not going to give you that, you right. know, because conventional horror is going to be like, hey, here's Freddy Krueger, be afraid of that. Right. But what this horror does is like, look. You might have thought that these intruders were the scary one, but you're the one that's actually the monster going out and killing them. Mm -hmm. You know, you're the one that's gone and taken it to a whole nother level. So, you know, or you were the monster all along and they were the real victims this entire time. So there's 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 a scary element with that. And, you know, even with another uh, bit of a theme, I guess, with the twist where, you know, when we recognize the monsters, when we see who the monsters are and we just turn a blind eye to them, mm -hmm. you know, we're just kind of like, oh, well, you know, let me just go on about my day. You know, it's right. not my problem. So the, that that is kind of where any of the horror element came from, but not in the traditional sense where, you know, a jump scare or whatever would uh, normally scare us. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think then that the generic definition of horror that this film got tacked on it, do you think that that can, is helping or hurting it when it comes to its classification? Because it sounds like what you're proposing mm -hmm. here is that Jordan Peele is almost creating his own genre. Yes. 
I would say I would strongly suggest that um, because the kind of similar to how M. Night really wants to emphasize the big twists in his movies. And that's like his kind of gimmick or whatever. Um, you know, Peel is really make I mean, we only have two movies to go off of. So it's it's really not that big of a uh, of a resume. But so far, both movies have a social context in them with some sort of intentionality to speak to some level of social commentary. Now, Get Out, I don't consider Get Out a horror. I never did. Um, and I think that was probably closer to thriller. It might have been like a social thriller in a sense. But, you know, uh, um, you know, technically with the, the check boxes that are checked off with the slashers and, you know, all that other stuff in this movie, you know, us does kind of meet uh, the social horror. So he's got a social, uh, a social thriller and a social horror. And I wouldn't be surprised if his next movie was a comedy and he just did a social comedy. You yeah. know, it, it really wouldn't surprise me. And yeah, I mean, if that's the genre bending that he wants to do, I'm all here. For, I'm for it. I'm yeah. for it. But I think his stuff fits into more of the lane of, of Kirkman's The Walking Dead, because that's exactly what The Walking Dead is. Now, I can't speak for the show because I know that's in and of itself a completely different entity. But from the very beginning, The Walking Dead has always been less about where did the zombies come from and more about how do we respond to them? And that's not a new idea, but if it's done in a creative way, which I think Peel does a fantastic job of and would love to see a comedy version of that type of approach, I think it speaks more to the volume of how well he directs and writes his stories, not necessarily the container that they fit in. So I don't think this is a horror either. I think it's more in line with a suspense thriller with an occasional slice and dice here and there and your 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 typical music moments that create small jump scares. But even the jump scares were very casual. Like there was a moment when I believe it was, uh, it was Abraham coming out of the water in any other horror movie, he would have jumped out of the water and it would have been accompanied by a giant, like boom this time in this movie, he just comes out of the water. Like I would come out of a water if I've been under there for, you know, 15 or 20 seconds. And that wasn't meant to be scary. It's just meant to have this presence. And I think that's the thing about this movie is it plays with the idea of what at, at, at a base level, what would it be like if you met your shadow, if you met your tether and it's kind of an eerie Peter Pan type thing, I suppose you could say, but I love the exposition that's given in the cabin in, in the lake house of describing the two experiences that the humans and their tethers had. And it wasn't necessarily an opposite, but it was, you got the best and we got the worst, but we don't know why that is. And so we're still kind of questioning that up until the big reveal and the big explanation near the end of the movie. But I love the fact that, that what Peel does here is he's not relying on those things to constantly get us in a state of raised heart rates. Because there's a lot going on in here. And if I'm constantly being scared, if I'm constantly clutching my the arms of my of my seat, I'm not thinking about the other things that are going on, even if I like that stuff. And that's definitely something that I don't like. I don't like having my heart raised. I don't like feeling like I'm constantly in a place of tension. So having a movie like this that allows you to feel just enough tension to kind of move you from scene to scene, but also unpack things that you're going, ah, okay. 
I didn't quite think of it like that, or I don't understand that. Let me refer to the ever popular internet for that. I think that there is a place for that because, you know, Kirkman, I think, has helped pave the way for that with The Walking Dead. And I think Peel is doing a successful job in cinematic storytelling, what Kirkman's doing in comic book and long form TV show storytelling. Can yeah, I just I, add one more thing? Sure, yeah, more. sure. Go for it. Um, and I know a lot of horror experts will very readily disagree with me on this. But one thing that I quickly do to disqualify a movie from being a pure horror is whenever they introduce um, comedy, because comedy is like oil and 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 water when it comes to horror. Um, however, that doesn't mean that comedy and horror can't work. It's just very difficult because those two emotions that they trigger are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So like when you're scared, Jordan Peele puts in some humor, you know, with the music soundtracks and stuff like that to kind of act as like a chaser, you know, to that terrified feeling. So for me, it's kind of, you know, they kind of cancel each other out. So it's kind of like, wait, do you want me to be scared or not? (laughs) You know, but anyway, that's just my little nitpick. Well, well, I completely agree with you because that's exactly the experience I had personally um, with this. And I think it's definitely a hindrance to some people when going to the theater and expecting a quote unquote horror movie, because from the one trailer I watched, it was balls to the wall, intense thriller. It wasn't hilarity. And so when I got that and when I got that for, like I said, we we have that incredible opening sequence that's very suspenseful. And then we just go straight into fun movie for the next third of it or so. And I really just got into a place that I don't think I was ready to take in the rest of the film in the way that I needed to. And I wasn't able to make that switch. And I, and I think it can hurt. I, I guess in general, and I'm speaking in generalities, really. I'm thinking the label that we give a film, the classification of genre that we put on a, on a piece of art can hinder people's experience going into it. Just like watching a trailer can, you know, just like hearing someone talk about it before they go see it can. And so, it can hurt it. Now, it doesn't make it a fault of the film or make the film bad. That's where we have to make the distinction. We can't let that be something that classifies how that film is in a matter of quality. But it definitely can be impact. Oh, you miss. Okay. Ah, well, Kales, go ahead. Don't go ahead, Kales. Yeah, to add on to that about, you know, having a film, judging it by a horror film, by a scariness and whether that's a good or bad film. I saw a lot of that over this weekend. Um, I have friends, you know, I come from Georgia, so I have friends who went down there to see it. And they were telling me like, man, like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't make me jump out of my seat. Like the trailers promised me that this was going to be like more scarier, but I turned out to be laughing more than I was scared. And, you know, I would go on to Rotten Tomatoes and see reviews of people calling it like, oh, giving it one and a half star because it wasn't scary enough. And I I found myself just like looking puzzled at it. I was like, um, well, did you look at the other aspects of the film? You know, or were you expecting just like a Michael Myers or like a Jason Voorhees type of film, you know, with the the tether of just going around and just stabbing random people and everything like that? Or <laughs> yeah, or were you just or were you looking for something different to where like you know you just felt just intensified the whole film so i feel that we've reached a conjury with horror films that if it's trying to like delve into social issues or deep topics and and it doesn't have like the monster or the supernatural entity coming after you then we tend to somehow just discount that and that's a problem 
Aaron, let me give you a, a little pushback here for the, uh, for the trailers and, and so on and so forth. So oftentimes the directors themselves have some say, or if not the say, in terms of what gets put in the trailer, how the movie is marketed and so on and so forth. We saw a classic example of that with the Russo brothers with Infinity War, you know, literally shooting new footage to make sure nobody really knows what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's some disconnect. We can see Terminator Genesis where they just give away the whole plot reveal, you know, in the trailers. But, um, because of the fact that directors more oftentimes do have say into what gets released or shown, that does create and shape an expectation going into a movie. So I, I have to, maybe I won't give it all the weight. But I can't completely discount what you're selling me on to get into the movie, what you're telling me I should kind of sort of expect, because that is going to affect how I'm going to interact with your movie. And a perfect example of that from my own personal experience is Cabin Cabin in the Woods. I effing hate that movie. I hate it to this day. I hate it. 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 Why? Trailers sold me on something so scary and yes even if it was just a typical horror i was so sold on what i saw and when i got into the movie theaters i was like what the did i i literally questioned four different times if i walked into the wrong theater (laughs) it irritated the mess out of me because the trailer so threw me off and i guarantee you had i known it was going to be more of a parody of horror films rather than an actual horror film i totally would have just skipped it yeah. I just would have skipped it. And it was that little, it felt like clickbait. So trailers I, play a part. I, I totally, I understand what you're saying. And I think the key here is that if you're doing it from a place of intentionally manipulative work, where you're wanting to get people into the movie who may not otherwise come to your movie because they don't like your genre, then that is a little bit underhanded. Um and so I, I do understand what you're saying, and I can totally get on board with that. I cannot agree with your specific opinion on Cabin in the Woods, though. And listeners, if you would love to, you can go back and find Patrick and I's episode on Cabin in the Woods, in which we praise the amazing film that is The Cabin in the Woods. So you can just wipe out E-Man's opinion and realize that <laughs> every once in a while he's got to be wrong. It's okay. And let me just let me just say this. The bottom line is your job as a filmmaker and as a company is to get butts in the seats. And you've gotten E-Man's money at least once, and I would never apologize for that because the fact is movies are made for people to watch, and if you get people in there that go see us, for instance, Kales, if they go in and like, that's not what I expected. Okay, that's not what I expected either. I expected, you know, going into this, I was like, okay, my friendship with Aaron is on the line, depending on how I come out of this. And I walked out going, okay, that was all right. Now, my opinion will probably change later this week about Aaron when we watch The Babadook because I know more about that. That one wasn't and, my fault. No, no. It's okay. I'm, I'm going to put you as the scapegoat for all oh these things just gosh. because, you know, we wouldn't be doing a podcast. Blame the you know, patrons. For you. I'm, I will blame us, not the movie, you and I, for that. But that's a side note. The fact is movies intrigue us based on their synopses and trailers help sell an idea. And I agree that it's like being sold a bill of goods when you're not getting what you expect. But I also have to believe that depending on what you, what you sell, you're trying to get people into the theater to see this. 
And sometimes it pays off. More often than not, it pays off. Maybe not. But sometimes it doesn't. And that's the nature of the movie business. If if we're going to be completely pure, no trailers for anybody. You just give a synopsis and maybe some stills and you go into the movie like that. But unfortunately, that's not what we get. We get 20 minutes of that before we walk into a theater, which, by the way, I intentionally tried to avoid trailers. And this was the first movie that didn't take the traditional 20 minutes. It started like 10 minutes in instead of 20. And I was like, oh, my gosh, am I in the right movie? What is this? And uh, just another side note there. But I agree with the frustration. I get the frustration. But at the same time, I wouldn't apologize for that either. Awesome. Well, moving on into the the messages of this film a little bit. So we can accept that it's a social horror-ish thriller. It's an original with, property. Let's call it that. With comedy. Original yeah. Problem. And part of it is that it's super psychological. So we've all agreed with that. And there are so many layers to be peeled back. And it does this in a lot of very interesting ways. There are a ton of omens throughout this film. There's a heavy focus on imagery and the framing of the way characters are in a shot. And there is, frankly, not a lot of clarity until a late third act monologue explains a whole lot of stuff, or tries to, prior to the movie's big twist, which then further spins everything into pieces. So, Kalesh, I'm going to ask you first. What do you think the film is trying to say, and how do you feel about its social messages? I know that you have some thoughts on its imagery, your one-word takeaway with symbolism, so... Let's just pull up our pants and dig in here, because this is the meat, I think, of what Us is about. And whether or not people are going to enjoy this film is going to come down to whether they are able to process and understand these things that they can get out of this film. And then there's also an element of how understanding these things plays with the experience of watching it and having them actually relayed to you in the film itself and not after the fact. So all that stuff is in play here. Take us away, man. My theory is that I compare the social messaging to um, a verse that I happened to come across in the Bible this weekend. This film actually had me going back and reading through the Bible just to catch some clarity on some things. So the verse is Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek means strength brought under control, the one who has found his strength into the service of God. So for me, I compare the tether to being the meek. Um, they were they have the government have found a way to clone the people on Earth. And the tether were supposed to be the people who were to keep the people up top on Earth under control. But eventually the government like just forgets about them, abandons them, and then the tether just go all crazy. So when I see that. Lupita's her tethered um red when she's down there and everything and they see her dancing and they see her like doing something that no one has ever done then you get kind of a sense that she is in herself a god to the tethered to the whole population and she says that she explains herself hey I got together with all the tethered we got together we made a plan you know and this plan took years but eventually it was our time to come back and be the the chosen people on earth for me, the people on Earth represented, compared to today, let's look at today's society. 
you have um you we've seen Occupy Wall Street. We've seen the constant um struggles, we've seen the middle class shrinking, we've seen the constant struggles of low socioeconomic people to getting the respect or the attention that they need. We constantly talk about in politics, hey, who's the politician that's actually going to worry about the people down at the bottom? Who's the politician that's not going to take money away, take to take any um bribes or any like money or like not tax the wealthy or the one percent. Like who's gonna be the politician that actually cares about the people? For me, the tether feel like they are the people who are on the bottom. They are the low social economic people that America wants to forget about or that wants to outcast or keep away. And the people on earth are the one percent. They're the wealthy. Over time, if you keep oppressing a certain group of people, they're going to come back full force and just Try to rectify the situation, get rid of the system that kept them together, that kept them down together all this time. I mean, compare it to um, look at the um, L.A. riots. Now, the L.A. riots was a very confluence of a lot of things. Many people think the L.A. riots started with just the Rodney King beating, but there was a confluence of things that went into the L.A. riots um, happening. There was the 1965 Watts riots where, um, you know, black people were revolting against like who they felt corrupt police officers coming into their neighborhood, roughing them up and treating them badly. And then you have the constant systematic oppression that these people had to endure, you know, no jobs in the community, constantly being harassed, you know, living in um, a war zone and no one coming and paying attention to that. Instead of people coming in there to try to help them, they just found a way to keep them down more and more. Eventually, like Martin Luther King um, Jr. said it himself, riot is the voice of the oppressed. And I felt that the tether represented the oppressed people and they were coming up to earth to try and take back what was rightfully theirs and what has been taken away from them constantly constantly they're coming back to get revenge they're coming back to get ownership of what they deserve and what they need and honestly for me i feel that there's so much more that can be read into that but honestly that was my takeaway as far as the messaging honestly also there's a way of like double identity you know um Maybe the person who's holding us back is ourselves, our deepest fears, our deepest, like, you know, um, negative traits are, are the real enemy of us and not the external issues that we like to blame other things for, for our failures. So there's also that. But mostly what I took away from this is that this is a allegory for today's society. And it's also a warning. If we continue to oppress and keep down a certain subset of people, then eventually they're going to come back and it's going to be hell to pay, so to say. For the people at the top, that's um my messaging that I got from us. Awesome, man. That's that's deep. That's deep. <laughs> All right, E man, what'd you pull? Oh, what didn't I pull? All right, so first and foremost, I think we should start off with um Jordan Peele's own words in this quote, right? Because okay. this this really helped ground the movie and um it helped me appreciate the second viewing a whole lot more. So. He says, this movie is about this country. We're in a time where we fear the other, whether it's the mysterious invader that we think is going to come and kill us and take our jobs or the faction we don't live near who voted a very different way than us. We're all about pointing the finger. And all I wanted to suggest that maybe the monster we really need to look at has our face. Maybe the evil, it's us. End quote. So for me, you know, going into the movie, especially the second time, I had to start to put on the lens with uh, these two themes, you know, uh, uh, in, in both 
both lenses, right? Which is one is the fear of the other, who is the other, and the other one was about privilege. And going into that with those two themes and, and the dynamic that they pose, they can be applicable to anything, right? They can be applicable to race. They can be applicable to uh, class or to wealth or to, you know, a, a location even. And a lot of those things started to resonate when um, the biggest social message moment in the movie happens where uh, Gabe says, who are you people? And, you know, Red is like, we're Americans, you know, and it was like it was it was one. Of, it was at that point that after Red gives her little monologue expo- exposition about, you know, you had warm food, I had to eat raw rabbits, or, you know, uh, uh, when you were given birth, you had essentially health care, you know, and I had to do a C-section on my own. I had to give birth on my own, you know, and, and I think that that was um, a lot of intentional um, representations of the 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 different spectrum of privilege in America. I mean, when we think about healthcare, everyone doesn't have healthcare. Everyone can't afford healthcare, or healthcare is just at a point where it literally breaks people, you know, with their bills and stuff. And then you have certain people that just have such great healthcare, it doesn't even register to them that having a pair of glasses is a luxury. And we saw that demonstrated with Abe and Gabe, where Abe took the glasses and was like, oh, my gosh, look at this, a whole new world. And, you know, when we when we look at those two dynamics, it it was interesting for me, because when you think about the idea of them being tethered together, privileged and the other. One can't live without the other, so to speak. One affects the other one way or another, either, you know, uh, um, so whatever you do in a place of privilege, you either have the means to help those that are the other, which is one of the things that even Red mentions in the movie where she says, I I thought about you for a long time. You could have came and got me. You could have. But, you know, Addie didn't um, or Adelaide didn't. Um you know, so that that idea of how we're connected. But there was another factor, too. Um, I know that I should probably make clear the fact that the movie itself doesn't necessarily explicitly say that it's the government. Right. But it is something th- those clues are laid out there. Right. Because uh, Red was like humans that built this place did this to us. Right. So we don't know if it's a secret organization. It could be the government. I mean, if we want to believe what Zora said in the car about the whole fluoride and mind control thing, all those things add up together. And I'm totally fine with it actually being the government, um, mainly because what Red said was the fact that the people that were in charge, they abandoned the the tether. And because they abandoned them, they had no purpose. They had no direction. And when you have no purpose, it feels like you're soulless. Right. It feels like there is nothing. What What is the purpose of your life if you don't have a direction or a purpose or, you know, a higher calling? Right. So, um, you know, it was interesting, the social dynamic with this privilege and the other, because this is something that has always happened historically, where people in charge fail at a certain responsibility, because in this case, they had the responsibility of taking care of these others that they created they abandoned them they didn't leave them food 
You know, they didn't leave him with any type of, you know, guidance or anything. And instead of the anger and resentment to be focused on those humans that abandoned them, or let's just say the government, instead that it's redirected at our fellow Americans, you know, where we start to fight each other over these things that we didn't even do to one another. You know, we like I didn't make a certain law that created this instability in society that you now suffer from, you know, or you're not actually trying to replace my existence, you know, just because you want a better life for yourself. It comes from the top. And it's interesting how none of that is even paid attention to by the characters in play, because we don't really do that in society either. You know, I mean, yes, we do, you know, look at politicians, but the whole infighting, you know, there, there's not that unison that we should have because, again, we're all Americans, we're all humans, and we're all tethered together. So that idea was something that really resonated with me in terms of how it just kept playing out in different facets of the film. Um, and, and, and it, 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 it's, it's always communicated. Like, I mean, little, in, in little microcosms, of the movie just in terms of uh dancing you know the dancing that's shown in the film that's a that's privilege you know to be able to have that experience to draw to color to uh, uh go out and dance to go live your life and do all these things while you know people other than you don't get that and they want that you know so i, I i'll i'll leave it there because i know there's more that can go with it and I'll, I'll actually touch on more of that when we get to the twist but that's the biggest thing that i took away from it with the uh messaging real quick do you think that it's government in general or do you think there is some intentionality around maybe it being a republican party i think it was general i think it was a government in general i think it was really just a matter of like you know because again the film is very um vague in terms of like who's the real, you know, perpetrator of all this stuff. Again, we, the audience, put those things together and say it's the audience, it's the government because of what was mentioned in the film. And, you know, because we need to fill in the blank for stuff. I think that's just a human thing that we do. Like, we, you can't just tell us something and we don't fill in the blank some way, somehow. Um, but no, I don't think that there was a, a, a an intentional political, um, divide like i don't think jordan peele was making this republican versus democrat or anything like that i i I think that he was really just saying oh well i will point this out one thing that stood out to me in terms of the government when when red said like oh the government or or the the people the humans abandoned us first thing that came to mind was like flint michigan we have a government whether it's state or federal whoever you want to call it there are citizens, American citizens, that don't have clean water. That's ridiculous. I would lose my mind if I didn't have clean water, you know, but I'm also in a place of privilege as a middle class black American, and I don't have to think about that. You know, I, I live my life normally on the above world while the people in Flint, Michigan, you know, are using water bottles to take a shower. Like, who and who's going to blame Flint, Michigan if they want to, you know, do a revolt of some sort? So, that is as close as I get, I guess, with the government side of things. But I okay. don't think there was a clear um, political divide or anything like that. I think it was pretty general. 
I think it's made general on purpose and uh, to back to what Patrick said in his one more takeaway about filling in the gaps. I think it's got enough referential material there to let you fill in the gap with what you personally want the evil to be. And then, while at the same time, again, someone said this, calling on you to perhaps reflect on that and why you're filling in the gaps with that evil or what you think is the problem or the bad guy or the message. Because maybe what you're thinking is the message is coming from your perspective of privilege. Um, And then reflecting on that gives you the mirror view, right, of, oh, yeah, forgot about myself. Patrick, what about you? What do you think about the symbolism in this? Well, I, I tell you, the thing that I pulled away from this more than anything is don't go to Santa Cruz ever. Um, that's just don't ever do that. Um, and don't ever go to the beach or near a theme park. No, I, I was thinking a lot about the micro themes, the micro symbolism. And again, I mentioned about the even the opening titles, like how us was created. You know, it was it's it's not all caps. It's you know, lead cap. What does that mean? And maybe it doesn't mean anything. I love the fact that a movie like this can, as Ford would say, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar that could be just a great movie. I know it's not that. Jordan Peele's quotes clearly tell us that it's not about that. But film as art allows that subjectivity to kind of bring your own perspective and create your own interpretation as it affects you. And I really focused on the word tethered. And I fully admit that Jordan Peele may not have been thinking about this, but this is my appreciation going into this is if you look at the word as defined by the dictionary, it's simply tying something with a rope or a chain so as to restrict its movement. So tethering a horse to a a piece of wood so that it doesn't move. I'd like to believe that there's some intentionality to using that word to describe this group of people as the tethered. And yes, the obvious thing is that when we see the big explanation near the end, we see that as one person is moving above ground, their tethered is doing the exact same thing. So I get that. I get that there is a tetheredness there. But that's different to me than a word like connection, which is defined as a relationship in which a person, thing, or idea is linked or associated with something else. To me, there's meaning behind that. When you're tethered to something, you have no value to that thing. You are simply being dragged along. And I think to your point, Iman, if you have this privilege in the other, privilege, the privilege side is getting something, whereas the other are being sort of dragged along and being used for a purpose that is not fulfilling to themselves. Whereas a connection is that which, in my mind, the ideal is the two entities are being fulfilled by each other, a connection in marriage in any kind of relationship, a connection between two people who are trying to mutually understand each other and asking honest questions about worldviews, that kind of thing. Those are the you know conversations that I think in a world where race relations is a big deal right now, we want to get to that place. But I look at a word like tethered and I think that the the intent there is to show a sense of a lack of appreciation, a lack of value, simply being dragged along. But the interesting thing, which I think gives a great hint into the twist, is when we see that sequence of the two versions of Adelaide dancing. And that tips off the 
the tethers that she is not what she seems because you see dancing as being free. There is a connection there. That's not tethered. Her dancing and her other self dancing above ground, it's not just mimicking. There is a connection there because there's beauty behind that dance. It's not just her walking aimlessly around a room like we see early on in that explanation, which I think is fantastic visual, by the way. We see something very unique, very symbolically unique, symbolically beautiful, symbolically pure. And I think Peel is trying to tell us that that's connection as opposed to being just tethered. And that's a strong metaphor for me to be able to think that the people that we are in contact with, whether it's our coworkers, our friends, our family, our wives or husbands, depending on where you live and who you're with, those are connections. They're not just people that we drag around to fulfill. They shouldn't be, at least. People that we drag around to have our own lives fulfilled in some way that we provide meaning to them in some way, shape, or form, and they provide meaning to us. And there's mutual benefit there. There's mutual hurt and pain as well, because that's what it means to be connected to someone. Uh, the Bible talks about being one flesh when it comes to marriage. And to me, that's the ultimate connection in terms of a faith-based environment. There's a connection that that I have with with Jesus. It's not a tethered. It's not me attached to someone being dragged along. I get mutual benefit from that just as much as the other person gets mutual benefit from me. And I feel like that's a big thing that sort of hinted at in this entire thing. It makes me wonder what would happen if the tethered connected with their doppelgangers as opposed to mutilating them. That's obviously going to tear up the narrative because it's not as interesting. But for me, it's an interesting idea that's worth exploring in my own head. And and it tells me that maybe Jordan Peele wasn't going that route. But I love that film can allow us to take that kind of interpretive breath and say, well, maybe it could be this. Yeah, there's a lot of it could be this in this movie, for sure, I think, and left up to interpretation of each person and how they want to take away from it. And that's what part of the brilliance of it is, is for us to have these conversations. There's a value in that. And I think that it's a very challenging thing to review a movie like this or to assign a rating to a movie like this because of that. For example, that first viewing that I had, I, I just didn't get all of that symbolism. Even getting the symbolism, I didn't fully enjoy the way in which it was depicted to me. So despite the fact that I get it, the way the characters interact with each other or speak, the way the narrative plays out, I didn't find it as compelling as many other horror films or even thrillers. It didn't get my heart rate up. And so it becomes really difficult because I can understand all of these incredibly deep symbolic meanings that this film holds and these, these messages that it has. But film is also an entertainment medium. And when you're not entertained by it, or when you're going in expecting to be entertained by it, there's a challenge, I think, for directors like Jordan Peele to craft something that is absolutely both. That is at the same time, this deep, and this like this challenging for us to go through and understand. Most people didn't know what Hands Across America was. If you weren't alive in the 80s, you're not going to know what that is, right? 
but it has this incredibly deep meaning. The fact that it was this $100 million attempt. They were going to raise $100 million from Americans. It was celebrity-driven. People of privilege were driving this and trying to have people uh, pledge $10 or more to participate and create this chain of humans holding hands across the nation, which is crazy. But it only raised $15 million out of $100 million. And, and it's to the point of E-Man speaking. It's because we, we kind of turn our eyes to things like that that are right there in front of us. And so there's all of these things to pull out of this. I'm wondering, were you guys in- entertained by the movie as a film of as an entertaining experience? Like, were you only into it because you were trying to decipher its its social messages, or did you like it as entertainment? Um, I happened to enjoy it for the entertainment aspect. I expected to come in and see like the same trademarks that Jordan Peele had with Get Out. And in us, I did see some of that aspect. Um, the way that his, the way that he can pull the camera close to a, a character, the way that he frames these close-ups to be so majestic and powerful. I mean, they're amazing to watch. The way that the music is curated well, I think Jordan Peele doesn't get a lot of credit for the way he uses music in his films. It just like wasn't Get Out in the beginning when you hear the chanting of like, and he said that's supposed to be like old slaves like telling Chris like, hey, to like. To warn him to stay away from the family to get out. In this film, you know, when you see the opening credits of like, and then you see the rabbits right there, and you're like, and I was like, well, what is this? And then the camera pulls back, and you hear the tribal music come in, and I felt like it was like another ominous warning to the um for the family to adhere to, and you come in there just like not knowing really what to expect, but the acting was brilliant. Um, I did kind of like was not entertained by some of the character decision-making in some scenes. Um, I felt that it could have been more tightly written in that aspect. And, of course, definitely towards the end of the twist where we'll talk about there is a bit of heavy exposition, which I feel was needed, but it it could have came off a little bit better, you know, with a little rewrite for the screenplay. But for the most part, I was entertained. But also in the back of my head, I was looking to decipher a lot of things because I knew that there was going to be a tons of videos and tons of articles coming out about this film with all the symbolism that imposed, which is why my one word takeaway was symbolism. And I stood, I stayed away. It's so it was it took me so hard, but I stayed away from any article or any video of uh, about the film this weekend because I did not want that to taint my views or anything. I wanted to come to my own to my own opinions about it. And then maybe afterwards I might check a video out and then like see what they come up with. And that's another thing about it. You know, it's very entertaining to also see what everybody's opinion is when it comes to how the film means to them. Like hearing all you guys talk, I'm just sitting here just amazed because it's like, oh, well, wow, I didn't think about that. Or, oh, I kind of thought about that, but it kind of didn't like really resonate with me like that. But seeing all you guys have these different takes of what the film meant to you that's what makes it entertaining for me. So from an entertaining standpoint, this film is this film is the same way that Get Out was for me. Yeah, um, I guess for me, it, you know, when I think of entertainment, I, I, I try not to limit it to just, you know, whether I had fun with it or, you know, be scared by it. But like I was intellectually stimulated by it. And, and that for me is entertaining because I want to come out of a movie with something. And the mere fact that I could literally have a three hour conversation with a friend of mine just about the themes of the movie was one of the reasons why I got became a film critic, 
you know, because this is what I want to do. I want to talk about movies and and I want movies to give me something to talk about. And this movie did that. Yes, there were some elements that were funny and humorous. They didn't make or break the movie for me, but I was entertained by them. Um, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't as scary as it was projected to be. Um, I also just like Coles, like I don't, I, I really stay away from other reviews and and you know I try really hard not to read anything um, prior to seeing a movie. The only exception I will make is I will listen to um, the director or read up on the director and their thoughts of the movie because I do think that it's more important that if you tell me what your intentions are with the movie, now I can actually judge you based off of what you tried to do instead of what I wanted to do or whatever I can just randomly interpret. So hard um, disagree. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's totally fine. Um, <laughs> I would, the, I would it, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Amen. Well, the reason why I say that is because film is just like art, right? And art in general is a way for people to express themselves and nobody expresses themselves without the intention of communication. So for me, I need to know what are you trying to say with your movie? And now I can go look at your movie and see whether or not you did that successfully, you know, in, in, in that sense. So that's what I mean by like, when I say, I look at what the directors have to say and what their intentions are. And now I can have a different approach Compared to if I'm just going in there completely cold and I'm guessing and et cetera. But just in terms of the entertainment value, yeah, the, the, the mental stimulation, all the different themes and nugget to dissect and to have conversations about and just pick people's brains and see all the different perspectives. I love that because that's the part of film that, you know, just, just keeps me going. Yeah. So I would. I would halfway agree with the fact that it, for me, it was an entertaining movie, but it's interesting because I think there is a factor of being able to have a conversation piece about it either right after or soon after. This is the point of our podcast, obviously, but I went into this thing by myself and I fully admit that that can affect my reaction to it. The other end of that, the other part to address what you were saying, Iman, is if this movie had existed in the early 90s, not in its style, but in terms of the access that you would have had to the director through a podcast or through some form of digital media, I think that your reaction probably would have been different because we didn't always have connection to or access to a director's thought. So I think that there is, there's truth to what you're saying. And I think it changes the way in which a critic looks at a film in terms of the layers that get added to a movie, it may be, and I have to look, I don't know historically what this is like, but if I look at Star Wars in 1977 versus 1997 or 2007, I now have more information about that movie. I have interviews with George Lucas. I have fan theories. I have all these things that could inform and probably interject an, a, a, a more subjective vantage point if i knew this was about you know if this was a medieval romance being told in forms of a, a space opera that would inform how i went into experiencing a movie like that as opposed to 1977 i don't know who george lucas is there's this big movie coming out does it stand up without that kind of information i don't think it negates what you're bringing to the table Eman, 
but I think it's different. I think it's a different way to experience a movie. And I think you can do it both ways because I didn't hear that. I didn't hear Peel's thoughts before going into it. Did it affect my reaction to the movie? Maybe, but so did not seeing it with somebody else. And so I fully admit that there is still subjectivity that goes into seeing a movie. Did I go see it late at night when I was really tired versus one in the afternoon when I was wide awake? Absolutely. None of that negates our response to it. I think we just need to be objective about those types of influences going in. Because I, even I, even yeah. have that, having that influence could sway your interpretation or your experience of that movie for the better or for worse. I, I totally agree with you, by the way. Like, you know, all those different things can absolutely factor into how we interact with a movie. I, I just look at it as kind of like, because as you mentioned, in the past, we never had that type of access, you know, to different movies. And I mean, oh my gosh, what if we did? What if we were, you know, if, if Scorsese was like way more into social media, you know, and, and he really dissected stuff and all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you didn't mean this in The Departed? Like what? <laughs> you know, like so... Um, all those type of things will, will absolutely factor in. I just think of it as a nice little bonus. And, um, and like I said, I just, I like to take that into consideration if it's made available just for additional context purposes. Absolutely. But yeah, absolutely. we totally agree. Yeah. I noticed, um, for me, um, one of my favorite things to do in my downtime sometimes is just to get my favorite movie and just pop it in and just turn on the director's commentary. Cause that, has greatly helped me as far as like learning more about film and everything. Like the other day I had watched a director's commentary on, um, I think it was on mid nineties, the Jonah Hill film from last year. And, you know, just like it opens your brain to just more layers upon what the director was really going for. You know, the quality of the film is a different story, but when you see the director, you get into their mind frame about why they did the shot like this or like why didn't the camera move during this shot or why did they write the character like this? It really just enriches you as far as like what you would want to see in the film. You know, it's helped me a lot to really like understand like, hey, OK, so this is what you mostly see in a great, well-written film. And this is what you would see in a film where the director obviously didn't care. And then like a lot of things are thrown away. So. Both of your guys' points I totally agree with, and definitely especially with the um, back-in-the-day aspect. You know, sometimes I watch Tarantino films and I get kind of frustrated because he's not really as accessible and open as other directors would be. You know, we're constantly looking for a director's cut of this film that was promised, or we're looking for an interview asking for his mind frame. He's very, very guarded against that, which I don't blame him. But yeah, But I think at the very least, the appreciation of a director... And his consistency can be pretty much objective in all these movies. Eman, you mentioned we only have two feature films from Jordan Peele. And I think there's a to me, I think there's an unfair comparison to get out because we wanted there are those that want to get out or us to be get out in terms of a reaction to it. I would say that I got a Jordan Peele film from both of these movies. You got consistent directorial traits just like you do with Spike Lee, just like you do Close with Quentin ups. Tarantino. Close-ups, <laughs> right. But it's it's in the same vein of looking at somebody like Alex Garland, who we fall in love with, with Ex Machina. And then we watch something like Annihilation, directed by the same guy, and somehow we expect it to be just as amazing. And it takes a little bit more absorption of that movie to really appreciate. And it's divided. 
I mean, he even has gone on record as saying it's not really an adaption to the books. It's really more of a response to these books, which is like, you know, mind blowing to me. But I look at that and I go, okay, rather than trying to compare Annihilation to Ex Machina or us to get out, what do I see that I appreciate about Alex Garland in both of these movies as a director? What do I see that I appreciate and like about Jordan Peele in both of these movies? And to me, that's where the real appreciation comes from. If It's just like when you listen to critics that you agree with or critics that kind of fall in the same line of the movies that you like. You're not going to listen to other critics that are not like that. You're going to find those critics that generally agree with the types of movies that you like because you want that consistency. Not because you want people to agree with you, but because you trust those critics. You trust their vantage points because someone who wants to get my opinion on horror, that's not the guy to go to because I'm not the horror guy. But if you want to talk to me about comedy or talk to me about high school dramas, I'll probably give you an opinion about that if you're into that. And I think the same rule should apply to looking at directors and what they bring to the table. I like Christopher Nolan movies. So for the most part, I'm going to go see all of his, even if I don't like one more than the other. And just one real quick point. I think, and this was a problem I had, the biggest detriment to us is the expectation that it should be like Get Out Part Two, and I think that that's that's something that that troubled me when I first went into the movie, because when I got out, I was like, oh my gosh, like this wasn't this wasn't Get Out, and that's okay. It's okay for it not to be Get Out because even with Nolan, you know, like I can go watch uh, uh, Interstellar, and that doesn't have to be the same thing as Dark Knight. You know, like those are two different movies. And even though, and I, I get it, like there are stylistic similarities between Get Out and Us. And yes, it's the same writer, producer. So we're going to hear the same voice. We're going to see very similar things in the movie. Um, you know, trying to tie the movies together in terms of expectations can have a detrimental effect on us because, it, and it's not fair. You know, Get Out hit us by surprise. It was original. It was different. It was cool. It was fresh. It was funky. And Us is trying to do something similar but different in a in a different lane. So, you know, that that's just the one thing I've tried to warn people about is, like, forget about Us. Like, Us is dope. Put that to the side. Now, go and watch, uh, you know, I'm sorry, forget about Get Out. But look at Us in a whole separate, you know, lens and judge it on its own merit. And then later on, I guess you can compare the two, but um. yeah, because I mean, if you if you go into us and you're intentionally looking for the racial depiction of a class and how Jordan Peele is trying to make a statement on race in the same way that he did in Get Out, just in a different movie, you will be very confused. Bingo. And that was me, I, and I did. I, I I fully admit it. Like I can't take it away. I can't undo it. I can't not have gone into it thinking that. But I went into it thinking that, and so it took me a while to realize, like maybe because I was trying to figure out like where is he trying to make this statement on race, but like it didn't necessarily see it on the surface, and that was the thing. In Get Out, it's very much on the surface. It is a relatable film that we can quickly put ourselves in the mindset of a character or the sub characters, the, the supporting characters, the white family that he interacts, we can put ourselves in there and start to immediately connect to it and go, Oh, 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 us is nothing like that. It's all about those questions. It's all about that experience of 
making you wonder why things are happening. And if you're the person like E-Man, like you, who gets enjoyment out of seeing those questions, I can totally understand having that, why so many have enjoyed this experience. And then there's me who can't necessarily do that. And for me, all I see is the questions and the confusion and it makes the character decisions not feel entertaining because I don't have any logical basis for what is happening. So that's, I mean, I, I think that that's why I said earlier, I think it's really hard to find a way to review and rate this movie on one viewing. It's almost unfair to it, to be frank, for anybody to have a quote, a fully realized opinion about us after only seeing it one time. You have to go see it and then you have to go see it the second time to be able to fully get that. It doesn't make your opinion coming out of it any less valid, though, after seeing it the one time. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge that the director, that Jordan Peele and people that do this like Nolan are always going to face. You have to find a way to make it equally compelling for that person on the first viewing as it is exciting and interesting to dissect and go into multiple times. Aaron, I was actually going to ask you this, and actually for everybody, was like, how much responsibility does a movie have to um, effectively communicate to its targeted audience? Because Get Out is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Us is not, you know, some little art house film that, you know, only indie watchers are going to watch. You know, that's not what this is. This is for general audiences, right? You know, and, and I totally agree with you because, like, I don't think that I was really able to get my thoughts together until my second viewing as well. Um, but how much do you think that that really relies on the film and, and how much of it is the fault of the film? If people just didn't get it, you know, because the one example or analogy I guess I would use is like, you know, if I'm a university professor and I'm teaching a high school course, I can't, teach the same way i would at the university level but at the same time is it a matter of like is there any responsibility on the audience or the the students to rise to the occasion and you know i think it's on the teacher and i I just went to a training course literally a week ago learning how to facilitate classes and the whole class was about understanding your room understanding that everybody has different learning styles and you are the one consistent and constant in that room. You are the one that has to get information from your brain into their brains. And it has to stick. And so it is the teacher and the facilitator, or in this analogy, it is in the director's chair's responsibility to make sure the film works for all of those people at the same time. Knowing they're going to all take it in in different aspects. I don't think it's always going to be i don't think it's an individual thing now i think that there is some responsibility on the viewer to seek out the way if you know seek it out more information if they know that they are that kind of person like if i know that i need the details to fully enjoy the movie then i should go be willing to seek those things out and then find out if i have a different opinion on the film but I do think that the most responsibility, personally, I believe, that it feel, falls it falls on the director to convey it in a way that their message is understood. I will amend that by saying convey it in enough of a way that they understand it. I think we could all walk away from us knowing what the major plot points are. 
family goes on vacation. They meet the, their doppelgangers through two significant expository sequences. We get understanding of who these people are and where they come from. And by the end of the movie, we see imagery that says they've taken over the world. Now, does that make for a compelling story? Subjectively, no, it doesn't. And I think that Jordan Peele as a director knows that. And I think that he ingrains these little pieces and symbolism and all these different pieces that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half to enhance our movie experience, to leave us with questions, much like this television show Lost, that didn't, pun intended, land the plane correctly, in my opinion, because it didn't answer all the questions for me. But I think in this day and age, when we have access to director conversations, when we have access to instant news articles that tell us, here's how you should understand this movie, maybe. I think directors understand that, and they leave less to be desired and told in movies like this. So you have Jordan Peele, who, again, I'm speaking for him, which is dangerous, but I would think that he goes, all right, people are going to be asking questions about this, so let me just leave you with a little trail, enough to get me from beginning to middle to end, make enough of a statement about these things, to help inform and get people to ask questions because his movies I don't think are designed to be just entertaining. I think the entertainment value is expanded because of the conversations that take place afterwards. I'm not going into Get Out without an understanding that it's more than just a suspense thriller about a couple going to visit this person's parents for the weekend. That's not a compelling story. But when I see people falling through chairs and I see people tearing up and creepy music playing in the background, that's intriguing to me. But that's not the story that's being told. And so I think Jordan Peele, as a director, as a marketing guy, understands his audience to know and understands the landscape that he's living in to say, I can use more than just a movie experience to get my audience to appreciate what I'm doing. I think he's doing that with us. And I think he says, this is a movie that takes more than one viewing to fully appreciate it, not to enjoy it necessarily, but that full appreciation, that discovery of like, oh, you know what? I should look at it from this lens. We've talked about that on the Ex Machina podcast. If you look at this movie and walk through from the three different characters' vantage points, it's three different movie experiences. Was that Alex Garland's intent? Maybe. But we picked up on that, maybe through the help of internet articles, maybe through the help of podcasts. But the fact is our movie experience gets more enhanced because of the way in which we absorb a movie. And the, the theatrical experience for Jordan Peele specifically can't be can't be enjoyed in only one sitting. Yep, I think we've learned that for sure at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so so part of that is because the ending gives you so much extra to chew on and you just talked about this, the expository sequence, this kind of nearly darn dear 10 minute sequence where there is a bunch of information being dumped on you and explained and flashbacks are starting to show you, oh, you should, this is what was really going on. This is one of my personal least favorite storytelling devices in filmmaking. I just don't love it. It can be done well. It can be done poorly. This was done well, as well as it could have, but I just don't care for it. So I'm wondering about you guys. The big twist, the way, first of all, the way that the expository ending occurs and the information that is given to us about Adelaide and Red, who is who, and then the realization at the end of the film in the car of 
who she really is. How did that twist work for you? And what do you think that that means, Coles? For me, honestly, I think the twist works on a couple of levels. Um, first, I'll start in with the um, whole expiratory um, scene that we that you were talking about. Yeah, it was a bit heavy handed. You know, it could have been done well. But as far as information given, I thought it was very um, interesting, you know, that, you know, and it brought me into the mind of like um, the constant um Things that we hear about in history, about experiments gone wrong, um, people being injected with certain things or, you know, testing out certain medicines and certain like um, war weapons and everything like that. And just having just that ugly history involved in it. So I did like that aspect. What I did want to see is uh, maybe just one scene of just like showing like who like how was the process of how they got these people cloned because i thought that was more interesting to me because i remember back in 97 when i was a little kid and dolly was on the news and everything about how they cloned a sheep and everything and then it kind of made me think about that when i saw the rabbits i was like are they cloning the rabbits in the beginning of the film that's what i was thinking as far as that so i wanted to see a scene more of like them showing the process of how that was done as far as for the rest of the scene, I had no idea that I thought it was going to end with just like them, like it's driving off somewhere and they got, they made it to safety. They took out their doppelgangers and then who knows what's going to happen after them, but that's the ending we're going to get. But then once you see the flashback and we see, we see red, um, being the one that actually got out and lived her life without any restrictions and seeing the real girl, you know, being chained up and being forced to live in an existence where you have to eat on rats and you have like toys and stuff that cut your hands. And it's not like soft and cuddly like a teddy bear and being around these different people who are just they're people, but they don't have a soul that hit me even the hardest, you know, because you can replicate a body, but you can't replicate the soul. There's only one soul between two people. I had a friend on Twitter who hated the twist, just hated it. And I tried to explain it to him in a way that where he could probably get on board with it, but he still didn't like the execution. I explained to him that for Lupita's character in the beginning, where she's like has PTSD of going to the beach and like she like is having these memories of like that night of what happened. I think it was the case of have you ever heard of that traumatic memories? Um when a kid experiences a traumatic memory when they're young they seem to repress it. They seem to like erase it from their memory and pretend like it never happened. It's a common scientific thing, you know, that they like to study in little kids. And my girlfriend has actually gone through something like that. So I feel that the way that the character set up, she had repressed this whole incident in her mind. She grew up believing that she was the, she was really who she was and that she was born to these parents. She had learned to dance. She was like, she had a childhood. You know, she was able to get married, have kids and everything and just live this wonderful life. And for her to just completely forget about her doppelganger, it kind of just said in her mind, like, oh, wow, like I was the one who who grew up into that world and I was able to get out. But I didn't bring along I didn't bring along my shadow. So now my shadow is going to try to come and kill me because I took away the life that they once had and they had to grow up in this horrible existence. So for me, the twist could have been, the twist was, mm, I say for people, it's going to be very divided, very divided on the twist. For me, it worked 
well and it enhanced my viewing even more especially when i went to look back and piece the film together and just go through the foreshadowing because honestly if we look at the movie again the twist is right in front of our eyes the whole time you know you see red she's right there in the beginning of the scene when they first meet the family she's the only one that can be able to form coherent words and sentences everyone else in the family is howling and screaming and they're like you know breathing weirdly like they can't they can't communicate like red can so that should have been our first warning into who into what the sinister thing that was a part of this and also you know the ray red talked about in that boardroom about how like she danced and that they had that connection according to what patrick had talked about they had that connection of her dancing and for me the twist works on a base level of being enhancing the film now for other people it may not do that but for me it totally worked and i felt that it was a good enough revelation that it just leaves you even more of a frenzy when you're leaving the theater. You're like, wow, like, how does the family deal with that? Because you see the son, he looks at her in the seat, and he realizes that, like, his mother is the doppelganger. And, you know, he kind of puts his mask back on, and unite. I would like to see, like, you know, maybe, like, a, not somewhere of a sequel, but maybe Jordan Peele could give us an aftermath of what that's like for the family to deal with that revelation. So the twist was was a good enough job for me. Yeah. So first of all, I, I do think that um, one thing that the twist in uh, did show us was that Addie, I don't think she was repressing the memories. She was just scared of the reckoning that was going to happen. She knew what she was doing with all those little evil smiles, like in the back of the car and everything. So I think she knew perfectly well that she stole a life of privilege, um, so to speak. And, um, you know, through the creative stuff that she was given, uh, by her parents, she learned how to talk and so on and so forth. But, um, let me just kind of give you guys a little insight on to what I was thinking about with the twist. And this will actually be something that I'm going to include in my explainer video, um, when I do explain all of us, um, in its entirety. So what I said was like, you know, so, I admit at first, I thought that the twist was not only predictable, but I thought it was kind of unnecessary. And that is until I started thinking about the themes um, during the second viewing. And I believe by having Addie and Red switch places, it proves something interesting for both the story and the social element that Peel was getting at. And for the sake of the story, Red informed us that she believed that the humans who created the tethered could not replicate a soul for them, right? So instead, they had to share one soul with two bodies. Well, it would appear that Addie's life in the above world proved that the tethered could possibly live fully functional lives if they were given the opportunity, the access, and the resources. So we were led to believe all this time that because the tethered couldn't talk, for example, that they were indeed soulless. But I do think that Addie disproved that notion, seeing as though she was a tethered person all along. I think the same applies with the social message that Peel was trying to convey. If we look at this from a class perspective, let's pretend that Addie was like a poor person, right? But then she came and did a, a body swap or trading places with a rich twin from above. Well, Addie learned how to dance, she found love, she had family and friends, and she was leading a pretty productive life in this now traded spaces, you know, uh, status in her life. 
So I think what Peel is showing with Addy, with the Addy twist is that those that we think are others were given, if they were given the same opportunities as the privileged people above, the others could gain a soul of their own, so to speak. But it doesn't really end there, right? And this is what I was talking about with the, the extra layers in this. If we stay focused on the twist ending, let's also look at the other side of Addie too. Addie not only used to be one of the tethered, but she was, she, she wasn't going to go back to her old status either. You know, she was willing not only to fight, but to become a monster in order to protect the privilege that she had actually taken. And that, I think, harken back to Peel's commentary about how we can be the very monsters that we think we're fearing. That fear could be very well, that fear could, that, that monster, excuse me, the monster could very well have our same face and we could become the monster as well. So that made me appreciate the twist in a whole new dynamic just because of the idea of what Red believed when it came to the tethered and what Addie proved through what she's demonstrated throughout the entire movie without us really knowing it until after the fact. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty true. I mean, the, the capacity, the fact that we have the capacity to be what the other is, is probably the biggest message that I took out of this overall. What about you, Patton? Did you like the twist? I didn't at first, but after reading some of the stuff off the internet and some of the insight there, I, I want to go back and watch the whole movie from that alternate perspective because I picked up on that after the fact, Kales, about the fact that this Addie could talk, although she had this really incredible like screeching sound, but that was obviously attributed to the fact that she was probably repressed in that place and she couldn't. Like she was forced to, in some way, not be able to talk. I attributed it to that, where she wasn't able to actually say anything. Eman is saying she has been choked. It was, yeah. She was I think, choked it, I out. think it was, she was choked and it damaged her throat. Okay. Okay. That, I, I, that's just my thought, though. I'm, I'm not saying that's. Can I fact. just, I, I don't want to go on a huge tangent, but I gotta, that is a perfect example of my reaction to this film in a, in a nutshell, right there. I understand that logically that there's a reason why the vocalization is the way it is because it has a meaning. I did not enjoy actually watching and listening and seeing the vocalization acted out on the screen. That is my personal like that is a perfect example of like how I kind of had that split of where I get it, but I didn't like it. So does that make sense? At least, because that's, that's that was a good example of it. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Patrick. Sorry. So I like the twist. I don't know that I necessarily cared for the second expository sequence because of its length. And to me, it reminds me a lot of getting more information from a newscast that a character is watching on screen. It feels a little bit cheap. Like, here's a screenplay, and here's some words. Uh, how do we explain this? How do we get this across? Well, let's just have the character explain it and try to create something interesting happening in the background. And I don't know that that worked for me. It felt really lengthy. I was kind of going, all right, what's going to happen now? And then, then we get into what I think is personally one of the more visually appealing scenes, but having that kind of starter gun of monologue really kind of deflated where I was in the movie. 
because when you're being explained something, it's not patronizing, but it feels as though the director honestly doesn't trust his audience to get what he's saying, which I think is kind of a blessing and a curse with Jordan Peele. He's like, have I left enough clues? I don't feel like I have. Let me go ahead and explain all this and then leave you with a few more clues. So for me, the twist worked. I don't know that the exposition kind of leading up to it did. Exactly. A hundred percent feel the exact same way as you, Patrick. I, I didn't love the exposition. I needed it in the context of this film because I had no idea what was going on. And mm-hmm. so it was insightful for me for sure, but I didn't enjoy the execution, the way it had to go down. And yet the actual twist I found incredibly compelling and I left excited and interested. That was what made me worth it feel like it was worth going back to look at again was for that same reason. I love you bringing up the ex machina example, which ironically or coincidentally, I guess, E-Man was on our episode talking about Ex Machina back in the day, so that was kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it makes me want to rewatch the movie from the perspective of knowing the switch happened. I, I didn't pick up on it, E-Man, so you must watch a lot more of these than I do, because I had no clue that they were the same person. Um, it went right over my head. <laughs> I mean, you, you think back on it, you know, once you know it, and you're like, oh yeah, House of Mirrors. Oh yeah, I mean, that, well duh, that very easily could have happened. No wonder. But I think going into this, you know, with the idea of it being quote unquote horror, I really felt that everything that was taking place was supernatural. The way the storm was happening at the same time, and it felt more like a ghost because I was thinking horror movie. And so that's where my headspace was. And, you know, if I thought about it more of a as a, a thriller I might have been able to connect those dots quicker and come to that conclusion that, oh, hey, maybe this was an actual person. But I never actually believed that the alternate doppelganger was a person. I thought it was a ghost. And I, and I felt and it took me a while to figure out, like, why are these people actually like coming to attack them? These are like spectral or some sort of, you know, non-human beings. I never thought of them as humans uh, initially. It took, took a while for me to get there. So. But yeah, overall, I like the twist. That's because we're privileged. Oh, you know, <laughs> we weren't going to make it. We almost, we went like two hours I mean, without somebody Good. making a privileged crack. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make one. <laughs> I know, right? Well, we all are. You we're sitting here on computers. Parents, so. yeah. We have computers and we have microphones and we're looking at each other, uh, yeah. you know, from thousands of miles away with webcams. And yeah, it, it is definitely a self-reflective film well before we get into the kind of good emotional well they're not always good but the most emotional moments and the connecting points is there anything that didn't resonate with you about this film anybody um the only thing that and i guess it's one of those things that we can connect the dots if we need to it was kind of with the jeremiah eleven eleven. i totally understand what it means for the narrative i totally understand what it means for the character of red who, you know, in a sense becomes like a Nat Turner, you know, in, in, in how, you know, she believes that she's chosen by God to go on this holy crusade to, you know, uh, um, prove a message, right? And to deliver evil or, or hell upon these people and, uh, so on and so forth as the verse kind of communicates. The only issue I have with this was, when we look at like the hands across America stuff, we had that, you know, within the narrative laid out. 
you know, she was watching it on a commercial. It was big during the 80s. We get that. We get the resentment that she has for Adeline or Adelaide because, you know, she could have taken her with her, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I did not get was how or why um, this seven, eight year old girl already had a, con- a concept of God or even religion to the point where she could be driven to see spiritual signs and to recognize them and interpret them. I think that to me was not executed very well in terms of the writing um, or even just the cinematography. Like it's not like we saw a Bible, you know, like on the uh, shelf of uh, when she was watching TV, you know, and maybe I missed it, but I didn't see the connection to religion or God for a young red, you know, to translate later on um, in her adult life. Just to, to give some context, for those that have not looked up Jeremiah eleven eleven, let me read the verse in the Bible for you. This is from the English Standard Version, which just happens to be my favorite version, so that's what you're going to get. Deal with it. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. So it's a verse that kind of purports doom and judgment on a people. And I, I too find this to be a little bit, I have not unpacked this one fully, I don't think, because it seems almost in conflict as a spiritual message with some of the stuff we see if it's really a government that is creating this. I don't really connect the dots as to where Peel is expressing a supernatural um, godly presence that is impacting these events versus a government or a, looking inwards at ourselves. Um, and I think I already mentioned how I didn't love that we got the verse, but we have no earthly idea what it means until after the fact. Excellent. Well, this is the part of the show where we jump into our connecting points and we talk about that one moment or scene that gave us the most emotional resonance, whatever that emotion may be. So, Coles, you're a first-timer with us. You get to go first. What was your connecting point in Us? My connecting point was the Adeline and Red scene towards the end, the big fight scene. I was waiting for when they were going to bring out the actual score into the film. I was waiting for the scene that they were actually going to do it. And this scene actually did it. Now, in the beginning, of course, we get the whole exposition speech about why the Tethered are who they are and why and what's their motivations and why they're doing what they're doing. But then we get straight into the fight. And just the way that it first started off, it was kind of weird. You know, you see Red moving around, you know, kind of like it's like she's stalking her prey, sizing her up, getting ready to strike. And, you know, you see Adeline and just in an uncompromising position, like you just... You kind of feel bad for her because you're like, this is before you even know that, like, she's the doppelganger in the original time. So you kind of feel bad for her. It's like, oh, what's she have in store for her? Then you see just Red just start to go off. Like, she just, like, she no holds barred. This, you could tell that you can feel the hatred that's coming out of her with every blow she gives Adeline. And then, you know, then she leaves and leaves out of the room. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? She's, like, finna hide and seek with her. She's just gonna torture her that way. But then, the camera turns like the way that this scene was filmed was also masterfully done by Peel. Like the editing is very smooth. The way that the score is incorporated just fits the beat, the movements of the characters. Like there's and there's hardly no dialogue. 
at all. Like, there's no like bad guy turning to the bad guy turns to the protagonist like, oh, you can't stop me. Like, you know, no like one liners or anything that can mess up the flow of that. You just get a poor primal fight between these two. And then you just see Addie just struggling to get a hit. Like, it was very, like, wow. Like, I was, at first, I hadn't known what was going to happen in the end. So I kind of felt like a stake in what Addie was going to do. Like, is she going to lose this fight? Like, is Red going to be the one that gets the upper hand and actually wins? Like, how does that impact the family? Like, does the family just get into a dangerous position where now they're just going to get massacred too? So Addie's just swinging moving listening lupia is just so great in this scene like then she's like ah like i can't hit her and stuff at all and then red just like gives her like a stab and then he's like oh like is she like going to be dead and then like she goes into the room and she finds a way to turn the tables on her and then she ends up stabbing her and once that happened the audience started in my theater started laughing when I, the second time I went to go see the audience started laughing kind of weirdly during that part when she got stabbed. I was like, why are people laughing? And like, you know, then, you know, the part where she's like sitting on the ground, she starts whistling and everything. And that was also another indication of the twist right there. Like she's whistling the same whistle that she had when she first went to the vision quest when she was a little girl. And then you just see the peeler just get across her and just start choking her out with the handcuffs. Like it was very, very, very very like you know heart pounding and everything just the way that she took her out in that way it was very very primal very primal energy i could feel it was just a very very masterful scene you know um one probably one of the best scenes that i know of course we only have get out in this film so it's not a big sample size but this is honestly one of the top three scenes um peel has done in his young career so far awesome man thank you um patrick what about you what was your connecting point well, the killing of the Tyler family was actually the one scene that stood out to me. And as you guys pointed out, it's the one scene that's chosen that kills off white people. And uh-huh. interesting. I don't know if there's some symbolism there that I want to. Privilege. No. <clears throat> I think this is pretty fantastic. And not just the killing of the family, but the sequence that follows it of the Wilsons really offing off their tethers. So much happens here that I think is incredibly important, not only to the narrative itself, but also to what Peel said regarding having a black cast leading the way instead of being offed in the first two acts, like we're typically used to in a lot of your your horror films that have black actors in them. Peel actually flips the script here by creating funny but forgettable white people, playing that role normally assigned to black people, and seeing them get taken out midway through the first half of the film. So he's using that trope, but he's doing it in a way that is probably making a statement here, and a hilarious one at that. I love the fact that these characters are forgettable. We see them in two scenes. One is at the beach, and then one is at their home right before they get offed. But as a narrative, the sequence was really, really revealing in showing that the Wilsons weren't the only folks who had tethers. Up to that point, we thought, ah, this is a special family. They've got their own four. We don't know about these other tethers that exist. It's hinted at, though, when, uh, when, when Gabe says, it's going to take the police 14 minutes to get here. That's weird. Well, of course it's not weird because there's already a big attack happening and these guys are a part of that. And I think that showing that bigger narrative in this sequence, along with pulling back and showing all four getting, getting not sliced and diced, but getting killed in a way that wasn't necessarily gruesome, but was somewhat bloody, I think is a great Jordan Peele kind of directorial quality and that he doesn't he pulls in a lot 
but also pulls back a lot. And I think he used a lot of restraint in that scene. So to me, this was kind of a revealing scene. And then afterwards, seeing the Wilson family just go to town in their own ways, seeing the two kids take ownership of that and taking out the two sisters, sorry, supposedly taking out the two sisters. And then eventually mom was really, really entertaining for me. We talked earlier about was this movie entertaining enough to be considered good apart from everything else that we've unpacked? I think this scene in particular was probably the most entertaining for me because it had the right balance of humor intermixed with some drama, with excitement, with a little bit of scare. And this is where I think Jordan Peele uses the music soundtrack to a great, like phenomenal choice. The way he uses the Beach Boys, then with NWA, and it's all just blaring. And you're kind of thinking, okay, is there symbolism here and what he's using? And maybe there is. But for the most part, there's really great juxtaposition. You know, you've got this, you've got this black family taking out these, these tethers with NWA screaming F the police. And it's just weird and exciting and entertaining all at the same time. But I thought it, to me, I think it was probably the most entertaining of any of the scenes. And it said a lot about the narrative leading into the back half of the movie. Great. E-Man, what about you? My point was originally the um, the the twist itself and, and those multiple layers that I had mentioned about just swapping places and uh, trying to fight to keep, you know, that position and status. But the other I mean, there are a lot of there were a lot of moments in this movie that I could connect with. But I think the other one was probably the very end with Jason staring at his mother. The final shot of Jason, you know, looking at his mother and deciding to put on his mask was an interesting one because I thought it was rather interesting that throughout the movie, Jer- Jason's always wearing a mask and it's not Halloween, you know, which was kind of odd to me. But, uh, you know, his mask was also a monster, you know, and when Jason witnesses his mother do a lot of gruesome things, um, I think that him choosing to put on a monster mask symbolizes how we function in society in a way, you know, where we see the horrors and we see the ugly truths in society um, from other people in society in general, or even from our friends and family. And rather than confronting those issues, we just put the mask on and continue on about our day. So I thought that that, that moment, because it, that moment in the movie just kind of seemed so awkward, but intentional. And it was a little unsettling, you know, like what what is a little kid like that processing about his mom that he just saw her brutalize and kill people, multiple people at that. And and who knows if he had actually heard the conversation between Red and his mom. We don't know that, you know, so. Um, the, the, I thought it was just a powerful moment that he just made a conscious decision to put his mask on and to look forward and just that, you know, there's that little bit of cognitive dissonance that's happening. Like, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this today. Let's just head on to Mexico, (laughs) you know? So that, that, that part kind of stuck with me. Um, just because I think, you know, it, it, it could totally mean a bunch of different things. So. Yeah, absolutely. It could just mean he's scared to death of her. That's who. 
That's it. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to oh. hide behind my mask right now because oh. yours keeping me out. I love that scene with him uh, and the puppetry, essentially, of walking backwards and the tether interacting in the corresponding way to get him into the flames. I thought that that was just a masterfully shot scene. But how and how cool was it that Red probably anticipated that as a means to maybe sacrifice that 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 tether for the sake of grabbing him? Mm-hmm. Because yep. she knew that he was. Oh, it was. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that was good stuff. Well, I'm gonna be Debbie Downer, I guess, in a way. I'm gonna say I did not come away with a distinct connecting point for this film, and that's not necessarily a negative thing always. I just, coming out of it before this conversation, without seeing it again, with all of the context and the understanding that I have, nothing stuck for me in that way, as I mentioned earlier, with the lack, kind of lack of empathy that I experienced. The closest thing I got was just absolutely being in love man crush style with Winston Duke and his character and his father in every single way, his dabbing, um, his ability to have great banter with his wife and his kids and playing his wife and kids kind of against each other. I just, I found myself in his character and wanted to believe that I too would be able to withstand a doppelganger chasing me somehow, some way, even if it meant going out into a boat and smashing said doppelganger's head into the rotor and the motor. So, I guess that was as close as I got was I just really enjoyed his character and it it sort of worked against me because once his character turned into just someone running and had no more agency really in the story as far or didn't have not necessarily have agency, but he didn't have necessarily a a plot line to himself, so to speak. um, I kind of missed that to an extent. Hey, at one point he he killed more people than his family. So he had that going for him. That's true. He does That's have true. a record of kill. And that exactly the kill count conversation, the humor in the film is my connecting point mm-hmm. because I just enjoyed so there much. I thought it was so witty and so realistically done. Realistic the humor. Yeah. yeah. The humor felt to me like this is what we would say. We would be freaking out, but we would be joking about it because we would be trying to provide that levity in our lives. And that's how we would, we would seek to do that. I think so. Yeah. I really enjoyed the humor. All right, guys. Well, this has been awesome. Um, I know I have come away just even more dedicated to going to see it again and kind of feeling along my way through it differently and experiencing it with that different set of eyes. So I appreciate you guys, everything you've said, all of your analysis um, and your takeaways. I know Patrick does too. We want to tell people where to follow you. Kales, you're new here. You're going to be back um, frequently. So this is not the last time they're going to hear from you for sure. I'm sure email will be back as well. But first off, Kales, where can people find you on social media if they would like to follow you and like read your reviews, things like that? Um, If, you go, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at BlackNerdMagic. Um, on Letterboxd, um, under there, under the same name as well, if you want to get my reviews and just my little mini reviews on certain films throughout the week. And also, if you're into Instagram, um, my name on there is BlackNerd91. So give me a follow. We can talk. Awesome. Imam, what about you? Where can people find you? Where can people find that video you were talking about earlier and things like that? Oh, yeah, the good stuff. Yeah, so... uh Practically all the social media handles are at Emans Reviews. 
Uh, both of those have an S at the end of those. Um, or you could just Google me at E-Man's Movie Reviews. It's E-Man, just like He-Man without the H. Um, you can absolutely catch my videos on my YouTube channel, which is also E-Man's Movie Reviews. And preferably, if you're really down for a good time, come and join the Facebook fan page. We get down with trailers and news and memes, and it's just a good old time. And you, you don't you don't want to miss out on that. So yeah, come on and join E-Man's Movie Reviews. One way or another, you'll find me and we'll talk. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Feelin' Film. This week is incredibly busy. Uh, we have a special premium pick episode on Mr. Nobody going up on Wednesday, and then our March donor pick episode on The Babadook posting on Friday. And we also have, along with that, a new Women's History Month themed bonus trivia episode for our patrons, which if you've gotten to experience any of those trivia episodes, you know you're in for a good laugh and a head shake or two. And finally, we have a poll open in the Facebook group right now that gives you a chance to vote on next week's episode. It will probably be gone by the time you listen to this. So you'll get a surprise later this week on what we're actually going to cover because we don't know the results just yet. So be sure to look out for those. Much appreciation to Eman and Kales for being part of the conversation. And we'll talk soon, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.